Hi there, and welcome to Edit Your Darlings, a podcast that tries to take the sting out of editing by talking with darling authors about their experiences. I'm Ariel Anderson, and today I'm joined by Justin C. Key. Justin is a speculative fiction writer, psychiatrist, and a graduate of Clarion West 2015. His short stories have appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Strange Horizons, Tor.com, Escape Pod, and Lightspeed. He is currently working on a near-future novel inspired by his medical training. When Justin isn't writing, working with patients, or exploring Los Angeles with his wife, or guesting on certain podcasts, he's chasing after his three young and energetic children. Thank you so much for making time to talk with me, Justin. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here and great to kind of to talk about my experience and would love to kind of also hear a little bit of your reflection as an editor, someone who does that. Yeah. So I originally reached out to you because I was curious if your approach to writing was flavored by the fact that so much of your work has been turned into audio, like your short story with Escape Pod balancing the equation or your recent novella, Spider King. And then you told me that the works weren't really edited specifically for audio in the past, even though they were adapted. That was all done with sort of minimal changes. But you also said that your process and your mindset for writing is changing over time with the thought to the audio adaptation. So I was curious, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, and um, with Escape Pod, which Balancing the Equation was on, I was actually a, a slush reader for them for a period of time. Ooh. As a slush reader at our level, they they tell us not to think about like the audio part as we're reading because they don't want us to kind of filter out something if we think that it might not be great for audio. And so I think that the higher level, the editors were kind of thinking about like, would this translate well to audio? And I felt like it was something that was kind of a mystery to me. From my understanding, it was, you know, that dialogue is really good for audio fiction. And I think recently, like working on some audio projects, like for example, I've been working on a project with Realm. Can't talk about the details of it yet, but I've actually worked working on a couple projects with them. And so I'm going through that process of writing specifically like uh, for audio. And it's a big change for me because I think that, you know, part of my writing journey is you know, first starting out writing, you know, 15 years ago when I was in college, just flowery prose, you know, just long descriptions, just trying mm-hmm. to kind of you know, put down all this stuff on the page, you know, first trunk novel is like 150,000 words. And, you know, it's, it's sitting, uh, it's sitting on my, uh, my bookshelf, but probably never see the light of day. Ooh. And with audio, it's thinking about, okay, how can we bring from what I've seen, how can we bring a lot, out a lot of that in the uh, in the dialogue, you know, being able to think about it like that helps with characterization and dialogue going forth in prose, just kind of thinking, okay, how much can we get, how much of the story can we get through how people interact with other people? And so that's been something that's mm-hmm. been, I think, really great to kind of keep in mind when writing for audio. And it's also kind of, you know, moving things around pacing wise. So what I found um, when I had to recently edit a project, you know, trying to get as long or as big a block of dialogue together as possible, you know, and it's, there's wiggle room to kind of that as a rule, but seeing like, okay, where is this dialogue piece broken up? 
by descriptions or interactions that maybe isn't as needed. You know, something that when you're reading on the page, it might be interesting to kind of to know that somebody made this gesture or somebody walked over there, but it's going to just kind of cause like maybe an awkward um, break when you're hearing it on podcasts or on something like what Realm does. So being mindful of that and also the experience of listening to audio as well, you kind of know what stands out as not translating well. There's a series of books, I forget what it's called. And since I'm not going to say the most positive thing about it, I'm not going to name it, but <laughs> that we would listen to. And it's actually a really great uh, series of stories, but the saids are so often that it kind of, when I'm in the car, if my kid is listening to it, it almost like it scratches my ear. Like every time, like oh yeah, of every piece of dialogue, it's like Mary said or John said, et cetera, et cetera, to the point where I was like saying it with them kind of in a mocking way. <laughs> so, you know, being mindful of those type of things too. And then another aspect that's come with writing for audio, and, you know, I haven't done much of it, but I'm doing, you know, doing it now is putting in some of those audio cues or the comments, like in terms of the things to lead the, the voice actor for it in terms of if this is said in a low voice or kind of off mic, or sometimes in place of description, it can be like, if there's a good audio production, maybe they can have, instead of it being like a block of prose, like kind of a block of audio that can recreate kind of in the same way that like the written word is supposed mm-hmm. to create this whole experience in the reader, you know, that is combining all the senses, even though it's just it's reading words on a page, you know, in some ways I think audio probably can do the same thing as where you're using your sense of, of hearing, but can invoke maybe all these other senses as well, depending on, you know, how well kind of the audio is put together. Yeah. All of those little ways that audio and video can create atmosphere that writers have to do themselves with the written word. Yeah. It reminds me of screenwriting. You know, I've taken courses in college and have like you know, some aspirations of one day maybe wanting to kind of dip into that. So I'm not the expert to kind of speak on like how they're similar or the differences there. But it, re- it reminds me of it in that sense, you know, where, you know, I think screenwriting is like heavily, you know, dialogue based. And then, you know, some scene setting and directions. And then the actors, or in this case, the voice actors, you know, then make a lot of the experience as well. Yeah. Now let's back up a little bit. And talk about the kinds of editing you've gone through, those general topics of how you found the people you trusted from beta readers and critique partners to freelance dev editors, your agent, your in-house copy editors and proofreaders and sensitivity readers. Ooh, that's a lot. Yeah. How did you build your team? (laughs) I'm still building my team, but I've always seen the value of having a team in some way. And And I think that me personally having it had to switch up for a lot of different reasons just in terms of like going into different writing spaces like in different places geographically i've had a lot of different teams in different parts of my life and i've learned one the importance of how to kind of take feedback and take critique and two you know what to do with it what to do with when somebody is thinking that a story isn't working the right way or you know has suggestions that may completely seemed to misalign with kind of like what my intentions were in writing the story. So I started writing more seriously in in college. You know, during that time, I I took writing classes there. Can't remember too much about, but I know I got 
you know, feedback and instruction there. But when I graduated from from college and continued to write, like I went on meetup.com, found a writing critique group in the Bay Area, Mm. you know, started to go to that because for one thing, it helped me with accountability, like writing every week, submitted something every week, and then also reading other people's writings. And then just trying to kind of see how it is that that I can improve. There's some times where it can be discouraging. And maybe the reason that I glossed over college, because I think back then, you know, in some of the writing classes, especially, I feel like with writing more like um, speculative and fantasy. And I was met with kind of a, a less than serious outlook by some of the professors that I tried to talk with or the creative writing teachers yeah. that I tried to kind of connect with or even classes that I tried to get into. I think there was a, a some class at the university I went to that was about the novel. And I was like, well, I want to be a novelist. And I'm very serious about this. I've written one, you know, and I didn't get it. <laughs> but um, with critique groups, what I found is, you know, you're submitting your work. You have other people who are writers who are going to kind of bring their own perspectives and their own things that they love or that they feel are rules or what have you. And they're going to kind of give you feedback. And what I've learned is when somebody has an issue with something or something work for someone to think about, okay, what's the root problem? Because sometimes they'll give suggestions. They might give suggestions with like, if you do this with the plot or that, sometimes that can be really helpful. But I also think that it's good to recognize when you can take the fact that somebody has a criticism and that something may not be working but that doesn't mean that you have to accept like what their answer for it is. Yeah. The novel that you said in your your intro, I've been working on it for a few years and you know and now you know working on it with my agent, but I remember when it was maybe started as a short story or so like years ago, I think one of the feedback was like, "Oh, does the does the antagonist have to be this for just to say broadly like this this AI? Can it just be like a person?" In my head, I was like, well, that's the whole, <laughs> the thing that brought me to part of it. And so what I took that as is, okay, I want to find a way to keep this, this aspect, but why isn't it working? Why isn't it working for this person? Why isn't it working for anyone else? And then trying to kind of find what the root of the problem is. And then sometimes you can do that by looking at what the consensus is or what there are patterns with a lot of different people reading it. With that, so I have that, I always have, have the critique group, and I've had a few different ones just because I've changed around geographically, but it's always good to get other, I'd say other writers' eyes on it too, because sometimes they'll just mm-hmm. notice things about narrative that, you know, maybe like uh, a lay person will less so. I do have um, a few dedicated, uh, unofficial, but dedicated like first readers, you know, one of my um, best friends, uh, Marcus uh, McLaughlin, and he's um, godfathers of my youngest child. He's always eager and wanting to kind of read like things that I've written. And I think that the benefit with that is that he's known my writing for a while. And with that, he, there isn't anything that would be lost between us if he's like, hey, this doesn't, this isn't really working for me. Mm. Because it, I think he knows mm-hmm. from that that he's not, you know, crushing my dreams or anything like that. He's like, I know that you're a competent writer. I, I like the things that you write this one isn't the best. Or then on the other side, it, you know, may mean something. He's like, hey, this is really like one of the golden ones that you've written. But, you know, I'm able to to talk with him just as somebody, because he, he works in tech, very smart guy. Just talk with him just about kind of what things plot-wise work for him or what didn't or what things kind of like left him scratching his head. 
And then there's, you know, I think that there's working with uh, editors after, you know, sold something to a magazine. And, you know, my experience for a long time has been just trying to get to the other side of like uh, the slush pile for a while. And that's recently been changing. Mm-hmm. My experience for a long time with editors would be their rejection letters. Is it is it form or is it personal, you know? <laughs> and I kind of climbed the ladder, especially with the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Charlie Finlay, when he was the editor of it, and he's known for doing this, giving like very personal rejections and just saying like, this is what worked. This is what didn't, you know, and also very encouraging, uh, at least for me, very encouraging kind of about the writing that I did. And I would take those with more than kind of a grain of salt and sometimes like change a story significantly based on those feedbacks, especially if I, if I aligned with it. Mm-hmm. And that would be to kind of get to the other side of like trying to get that acceptance. A lot of times though, I have found, especially I think in the short fiction markets, and I think that this is because there's so many people putting out good stuff that if the story is good enough to be accepted, it probably doesn't need that much work. Ooh. That's one of the things that sometimes I've, I've found because I've get to the other side and then, you know, get maybe like the edits back and there isn't that much that needs to be changed or there, you know, so, so it's like, okay, you know, it, it may be also that it's just so hard to kind of get past the gatekeepers or to get to this point that it ends up being like the story that doesn't need that much change. Yeah. On the other hand, I've had some revise and resubmit requests, which have been, I think, good, I think, experience for me. One of my stories in Strange Horizons, One Hand in the Coffin, Perfection of Teresa Watkins with Tor.com. Both of those were, they gave feedback and offered suggestions or offered kind of what may not have been working and asked if I would consider rewriting those parts or revising and resubmitting it. And with both of those um, actually, for both of those, it took me more than a year and a half to do it, Ooh. but I did and, and sent it back, and they both were accepted by the, the you know the same people that that requested that. <laughs> I feel that I'm particularly open to kind of feedback, especially even though I just said earlier that I rejected like somebody's feedback before. But I think I'm open to feedback that doesn't feel like it's changing like the essence of the story. And sometimes the feedback, for example, on the perfection of Teresa Watkins. You know, I'm a mental health professional and there was something in the story that I hadn't seen before that I was actually reinforcing like kind of like a stereotype that those with mental illness are perpetuators of violence when a lot of times they're more the victims of violence. And I'm like, this isn't what I was trying to go for at all. I didn't even know this came through. And having that in my mind, I was like, okay, I know how to fix this. You know, that was a, a lot more of a palatable change for me than saying like, I really don't like the main character. Let's make the main character this completely other person or yeah. this completely other identity, which would have been, you know, more draconian of a rewrite for me. Yeah. So it took you a year and a half to do the revise and resubmit. If at the end of the year and a half it hadn't been accepted, would you still feel the same? I think I would have felt grateful for that one. You know, I think that it was something that that needed to be changed. With one hand in the coffin, it can go maybe either way on that. I'm really happy that it, I worked with Strange Horizons and it made into that magazine. They did really great art and it got nominated for um, a Ignite Award, you know, all those things. I think that the push that they suggested in terms of that, what wasn't working for them, it was something that could have gone maybe a little bit either way for me, just in terms of it had to do with who was the real, I think, 
antagonist or kind of what some of the motives were of the antagonist or that identity. And I could have tried to make it work either way in that sense, but I felt like that it was still something powerful to have been said with the change that I did make. I ended up making a story that dealt more with the the implications of, you know, uh, losing a family member to suicide. Whereas Mm -hmm. before that wasn't as much as a outright element. And it's something that I was uh, saw in my wheelhouse to tackle and something that I do want to tackle in my writing. So to answer your question, I do think that I still would have taken that rejection, that final rejection and mourned for a little bit and then gone and submitted it somewhere else. I save past versions of my stories just in case I ever want to, I feel like I want to go back. And then breaking off, like, okay, I'm about to make this like significant change. Let me keep both versions. Because if I ever feel like this was like the wrong direction, I can go back to that one. Yeah. How do you keep them organized so that you know which one is which and don't accidentally submit the wrong file? Um, Not that well, to be honest. I've done that. <laughs> There's been a couple times in the past, recent past, where I've had to go back. And I seem to notice this as soon as I send it. Of course. I keep a lot of things on Google Docs and I do a lot of searching or I'll try to put in like certain phrases or things in the title to just quickly indicate to me that this is like, this is the type of version it was, or I might like save it as, you know, for example, one hand in the coffin underscore before strange horizon rewrite. You know, I have sometimes just multiple files and as the years go by, if God forbid, if this is a project that I want to go all the way back on, it's like, oh, I need to. I need to reset this a few versions. Sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to kind of like sort through that. And I do that. I, I keep documents that have scraps. Like, you know, when you when I'm cutting off big parts or when I have to revise or edit something down myself and, you know, killing your darlings. Um, instead of killing them, I usually just put them off to the side somewhere so that I yes. can, can retrieve them later for some use if I need to. You've got a little nest of darlings. I do. I do. It's it, it, it feels like I'm cheating in a way just because it's like it's like I could use this in another story or, you know, I can use this as as part of some flash fiction or something like that. Yeah. I don't want those words to just no longer exist. Yes, exactly. Because it's it feels like it would be the worst thing if I really was trying to come back and find it. The novel I've been working on, there's been so many different iterations of cutting out the first three chapters, you know, because it's that, that whole, <laughs> that whole advice of like, oh, the story really starts here. And then later other eyes see it. It's like, you know, I feel like there needs some backstory. I'm like I have backstory, <laughs> you know, it's over here. Let me go get it. So having that, I, I, you know, it gives me kind of a security and knowing that like, that it can be used elsewhere if, if it needs to be. Yeah. That's just, that's just smart. Conservation of words. So you said in your pre-interview that you wonder if you're not pushing back enough in your dealings with editors, that you hear a lot about being at odds with editors or arguing over what content should or should not make it into the final, and you haven't come across that too much. And this is the sort of conversation that really gets my heart pumping, gets that little hamster in my head spinning its tiny wheel. So two questions here. First, where do you think the idea that editors and writers are at odds comes from? Why is it so persistent? You know, I I can't remember exactly where it's from, but I feel like it's 
consistently like hearing whether it's like in real life stories or whether it's like just in you know one-offs that people may say and like if they're writing about the writing process or just comments that somebody may make is that like that there's this push and pull from like the the editors you know and even that sense of like you know having to find a kind of an editor that not agree but understands your story and Mm -hmm. you know wants the same things for it uh if you're on the same page and either i wonder like if i've been fortunate enough to not come to step into that that situation where i feel like i was kind of at odds with an editor that i've already worked with yeah editorial feedback so far it's been like yes i align with this i'm on board with this and sometimes i I wonder like if i'm not opinionated enough because sometimes with Mm. even when getting like some of the edits back you know an editor may say say on just like what i may see as a simple change you know let me know if you agree with this it's fine if not and i was like well well this really seems like inconsequential to me you know it's kind of like a grammar point or deleting a piece of prose that felt like it may not be needed. Um, and it makes me wonder if, if there are other writers who are, are more like, hey, you know, I put this in for reasons, leave it. Yeah, interesting thing. And I don't want to be too specific about this. I did have a project where there was a sensitivity reader and the sensitivity reader um, was focusing on mental health aspects. And I don't know if they realized that I was a psychiatrist. So it's interesting because some oh. of the feedback, some of the feedback I actually disagree with. You know, this isn't kind of accurate, or people with this experience may not use the experience this. And you know, for me, it's like, well, I kind of I've studied this for a long time, and I actually kind of I, I do know that the way that I portrayed it actually may be accurate, et cetera. So that was something that was a little bit, I think, more kind of difficult. And I was like, well, how do I kind of deal with this? And I think what how I did address it was similar to what I said like earlier with um, taking critique. It's like, okay, if they had this experience, somebody else may have too. There's something that's that's here that's missing in the text mm-hmm. that could be put there to at least acknowledge that I recognize that there may be these different ways of thinking. You know, and even if it's just to, to put it more simply, even if it's just putting in there, just like somebody saying like, I know people usually think this about this, but usually, you know, just in working that in a dialogue way or some way, I think that was something more so where I felt like I pushed back a little bit more and said, hey, I actually think that this is, you know, I don't want to change this. And it, it's anxiety provoking, I think, for me, because there's this this feeling of like, am I going to be too difficult? Is somebody going to take this away? Mm. Is somebody going to take this away? Yeah. It's a big part of, uh, I think, my imposter syndrome. It's like, I want to make sure that I'm balancing it well, because I'm a little bit anxious about, did I miss something? Mm. And I had to kind of remind myself like, no, I actually do know these things. And I think that that with the the editing, if somebody comes and says that this needs to be corrected, it's almost has that voice in my head, like, well, who am I to kind of disagree with this? But on another stance, I've had it say that, hey, here are the copy edits, or this is what have you. And after they've accepted it, and you can reject or accept all of them. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to me, to, you know, so I'm like, so if I really rejected all of these, like these grammar edits and making sure that like the ellipses are right and the spacing's right, you all would just print this, you know? So it's, so it's kind of an interesting thing that, <laughs> that, that also lets me know that they would really take it either way. 
But then there's also that that voice in my head that's like, you know, I don't want to let them down. Mm. I don't want to have fought for something that was in wrong. And then, you know, they're they're feeling like, man, that author Justin has the readers make making them think that the magazine of fantasy and science fiction prints errors, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's this power balance because, I mean, as an author, it's your work. It's your words. And so you do have the right to say, Stet, I want it the way I want it. This is my stuff. Leave it the way it is. But that also the publisher has the right to come in and say, actually, we have these standards. This is what we're doing. If you're not comfortable with doing this, we won't print it. So there is absolutely that give and take contract between the author, the editor, and the publisher. But yeah, feeling like like you have that specialization, you know what two feet you're standing on, I think is where you have to sort of start getting that courage to push back. And then I was curious about just like how much pushback would feel like now I'm no longer an imposter. Being able to push back then felt good. It's also at the same time, I also don't want to be someone who is there actively like ignorant of somebody else's experience, you know, mm-hmm. um, just because I'm a, you know, psychiatrist or a mental health provider doesn't mean that I like purport to know what everybody experience would be. I don't think I would ever be the person to dismiss like, Hey, this term is offensive. Mm-hmm. I think I would always be someone to explore and like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Who is this offensive to? Why? I don't think I would ever say, be the one to say, no, you're wrong. This isn't offensive to those people. Yeah. In terms of what level of pushback will make me feel like I'm not, you know, even pushing back, I think feeds into the imposter syndrome a little bit. I think recently I, I pushed back on a project that, that actually had to do with like the audio bit. And, you know, I, I think it was that, oh, it feels like that this part that was written may not be the best for audio. And this is one of the crucial parts kind of uh, of the story of the narrative. So the, the decision was, you know, we'll, we'll keep it for now. And then like later as we're kind of like doing like the production or what have you, you know, uh, the editors, I anticipate there may be problems, but we'll address it then. So then it's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, in my head, I'm like, am I making more problems because I didn't just roll with it here? And then I think the question for me is, uh, do I also just accept it as part of the process, no matter how it ends up. But you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I think part of it, if you want to learn more about something uh, or investigate something before making the decision, even if there's nothing else more to learn, it might've still been the better decision to investigate it just in case there was something else to learn. I think the level of pushback isn't what's going to cure the imposter syndrome, <laughs> to be honest. I think that it would be there no matter what. Yeah. Even is there a cure? I don't know. I think maybe being around other imposters is the cure. It's kind of more like, oh, <laughs> we're all imposters, so it feels feels fine. I, I do think that that knowing that there are other people who have those those same feelings, and even if you cognitively know that that a lot of people out there have the imposter syndrome, I think every time when you hear somebody else, it it, it it's like a little bit of a shock. It's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. it's not just me. So I think you know, if anything, that feels like sometimes a cure. I love it. Well, let's move to the questions that I ask every author I talk to. First, what do you hate about the editing process? 
I know this is not what you asked, but I I, I really I like sometimes the the editing process because it's my time to like prove that like I'm a good writer. I can turn this into like something great because mm. sometimes what comes out initially on the page is just you know what my brain can kind of come up with in the moment. I think that it, it's a tedious process for me and it's a tiring process for me. Um, I like to edit longhand. I print out my work. Yes. There's something about just a pen. Yeah. Yeah. And I take a pen to it, but then it, it's like double the time because then I have to go and translate those changes onto the page. And then as I'm transferring it back onto the computer, like going through, I'm going to be editing real time as well. Anything that I, that I didn't notice. So that it can be, you know, sometimes very time consuming. I think one part about editing longer pieces of work is trying to keep in mind like the whole, the whole narrative. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm editing kind of like a short story, it's something that I can do in like in sittings, right? And but sometimes, especially with novel, it's like okay, I have thirty minutes free what am I really going to be able to get done in 30 minutes? It's about sitting down and try Ooh. to reorient myself in this whole thing. So that's actually one thing that I've been trying to figure out kind of as my, as my life has been, well, it's been busy for a while, you know, um, <laughs> three kids and med school and residency I've done with all that, but you know, it's still started a private practice. So it's, it's still like a, a lot of my writing and stuff is spent at night. So short stories are easier, I think, to work with in terms of like, yeah, I can go through this whole thing now. I felt like if I wanted to sit down tonight and like edit a part of my novel, what would I be able to do that's productive in 30 minutes? You know? Um, So I think that that, that's a difficult part. Yeah. Wow. I can't believe that anybody makes time for writing when they have children in med school and that's wild. You know, it's a, uh, I mean, this, I mean, this is a positive way. I wish I had a better phrase, but it's a blessing and a curse in the sense that I'm very passionate about both of them. I think I'd gotten the advice to try to like, just put writing on pause for a time while while going through the the medicine thing, mm. but I couldn't, and I'm glad that I continue to do it. But it, it's it's one of those things that it, having different things that are passions also means that I'm kind of like you know for lack of for better or worse never satisfied. Like even today, you know, objectively I've accomplished a lot today. I've seen patients. Like I'm on a podcast, being able to kind of talk to someone who's interested in in my perspective going home, getting the kids, getting them all ready. But then when it's when everybody goes to bed tonight, like if I don't do something with my writing, I'll feel like I'm not being productive. Mm. So yeah, it, it's something that I'm kind of trying to give myself grace with. But yeah, yeah, it, it can be tough with, uh, with a lot of different things, but it keeps me busy. So busy. <laughs> what is the most common bit of feedback you receive on your writing? The most common bit of feedback is um, that I write long, I've started to take that as more of a positive, but I think from the beginning, you know, it's, it's that like, you know, this could be trimmed down, whether you want to say it's bulky, whether it's too wordy or too heavy on descriptions, what have you. But I've had that since back in 2007. So it's something that I keep in mind that I, you know, attack in kind of the editing process. And I think on the other hand, maybe people who editors have seen my work lately, they may kind of like, scoff at this as I say this, but I, I feel like I'm good at cutting things. Mm. At least there was a period of time when I was good at it. Uh, maybe recently I still end up with 7,000, 8,000 word short stories when they ask for 6,000. But 
I've gotten to a point where I feel confident saying like, okay, I need to cut 2000 words out of this 8,000 word story. I can do it without like taking a, taking out a scene or like any major characters or anything like that. It's just kind of like the whittling process and like going through mm-hmm. and be like, oh, these two sentences can become one. I've adapted to that by knowing that uh, a big criticism of my um, work, at least early on, was that it was that it was lengthy. Speaking of lengthy, oh no, I forgot to keep an eye on the clock for this episode. And here, Justin kindly informed me that we were about to go over time for recording, and he couldn't stay on. So that's my bad if the end of this episode is a little rushed. Okay, back at it. So we will skip the last words of advice because you've been so helpful already. Let's do our hot and wholesome gossip corner. Are there any other writers or creators doing something you're excited about? Any shout outs you want to give or people you want to lift up? Yes, yes. So um, Codwell Turnbull has a couple novels out. His latest one is No Gods, No Monsters. He started the Many Worlds Collective. It's a collective of different writers and different short stories. So he's basically trying to, to bring up other writers with him, with his success. Um, and I really admire that. He's putting out great works. Um, and I've also worked with Cole Glover and Karen Lord on a collaborative project that hopefully one day I'll be able to tell everybody about. And they've <laughs> just been really great to work with. Uh, Sheila Renee Thomas, um, the, the new like head editor at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, is doing great things with that magazine. I'm really excited kind of about this next period with that magazine. Rebecca Campbell, she's one of my um, classmates from Clarion West. Just had like a really great story in uh, Clark's World, The Language Birds Speak. Also, um, I'm not putting a new name out here, but just somebody's writing I really admire in their work ethic um, and also being, you know, very, I think, helpful and ingrained in the writing community is Rebecca Roanhorse with uh, latest novel out, The Black Sun. So, yeah. I love the hot and wholesome gossip corner. So many good recommendations there. Justin had to bounce before signing off, but you should definitely check out his work. Follow him as at JustinKey underscore MD on Twitter and Instagram, or head to his website, JustinCKey.com. His work in speculative fiction is all over the place. But if you're into horror stories that explore racial justice, I definitely recommend you head over to Realm for his unforgettable miniseries, Spider King. Huge thanks to Justin for making time in his incredibly busy schedule to talk with me and to lift up so many other writers. If you loved this episode of Edit Your Darlings, why not share it with a friend? Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast fix. For show notes, go to edityourdarlings.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at editpodcast, or I'm at aerialcopyedits. Until next week, cheers! (laughs) Cheers!